If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, you're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. The sky is blue, the rain is sporadic, the daffodils are out, and so is my new packet of Puritan. Spring is here, and we want to celebrate it in this month's series of podcasts by talking about new beginnings. In 1859, Charles Darwin changed the course of history forever by publishing On the Origin of Species. In 1872, he published The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, which didn't rock the boat quite so much, but it continues to be a source of controversy in our ongoing scientific debates on evolution, and specifically, how it relates to human psychology. Can evolution explain cultural and social differences? Or do we need something new? Julian Beghini is our host in the debate after evolution. Uh, the, the discussion today is about after evolution. And the, the, the provocation for this is this sense that we hear a lot about how genes in particular are allegedly responsible for this, that, and the other. I'm not sure how often those claims are made by scientists themselves or over-eager journalists, but nonetheless, that's the message that gets through. And yet, clearly, there are huge differences between culture. So if you think about sex differences, for example, if in Scandinavia, uh, men routinely change nappies. In certain other countries in the world, a woman can't even uh, drive a car. So there are huge cultural differences. And if, how is that, in a sense, compatible with an understanding that genes are the drivers of all sorts of aspects of our behavior. We have three people here to discuss it with us who are a perfectly assembled cast. To my left, Oliver Curry, lecturer at the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at the University of Oxford. To my immediate right, Daniel Everett, who is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Bentley University, Boston, and the author of Language, the Cultural Tool. And to my far right, Janet Radcliffe-Richards, Oxford Professor of Practical Philosophy at Oxford and the author of Human Nature After Darwin. So to, to, without any further ado, we're going to begin with just four minutes sort of setting the stall out, answering the question, can our genes explain why behaviour varies between cultures? So, um, Oliver, what's your initial thoughts on that? I think that humans have uh, a range of hardwired, evolved psychological mechanisms. Um, that influence many aspects of their behaviour. They also have the ability to, in, we also have the ability to invent new ways of doing things in a whole range of different domains, and that's what we call culture. And the goal of 
evolutionary psychology is trying to decide which is which for any given bit of behavior. Is this um, a product of some ancient evolved mechanism and or is this something that, we've, that humans have invented, a new, a new way of doing things? In terms of can this approach, what can this approach tell us about culture and cultural differences, if the question is do differences in genes between cultures uh, explain differences uh, in their behavior, I think the answer is uh, no, it doesn't. And no respectable biologist or evolutionary psychologist uh, thinks that. But I think genes or an evolutionary approach can tell us some other things about culture. So animal behaviorists joke that you can group all behavior under the four Fs, uh, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and sexual intercourse. And, I think, <laughs> and uh, when you think about all the millions of different ways uh, all the different creatures in the world solve these problems, the way that humans do it is within a fairly narrow range compared to salmon and fungus and oak trees, humans are doing quite a sort of predictable set of things. They behave more or less the way that you'd expect uh, a social primate to behave. We ha have families, care for our offspring, form coalitions, form hierarchies, have in-groups and out-groups. Humans do this in sort of extra interesting ways, but it's not, uh, not sort of baffling or completely surprising from um, an animal behavior point of view. So I think in that sense, uh, an evolutionary approach can can account for what humans have in common, so what some of the content of their uh, culture is. In addition, even when we talk about evolved hardwired mechanisms, these mechanisms are hardwired to be flexible. They do different things under different conditions, and that's kind of what they're for, that's what they're for to be to identify uh, what's going on in the world and do and do the appropriate response. So. These mechanisms are likely to do different things under different conditions in different cultures and different places, under different ecological and environmental and social circumstances. Um, and understanding more about those mechanisms can account for a lot of how we vary. On top of that, as I said at the beginning, humans also have this amazing ability to invent uh, new ways of doing things, completely unprecedented, not uh, sort of anticipated by natural selection at all, and that's what we call culture, and that's very hard to predict. And that's what we tend to focus on when we think about uh, cultural differences. But, but even there, I think evolution can make a the psychology can make a contribution in terms of understanding the mechanisms, the software that we use to uh, invent ways of doing things, to share, um, to, in terms of who we copy, who we, th who we think is a good role model. Uh, so even when it comes to that sort of area of learning and uh, imitation, that's a difficult thing to explain how a, how a biological machine like us manages to do that. It's not easy. Um, so I think an evolutionary approach can, and, uh, can help there too. So I think it explains some, quite a lot, but not all of cultural variation. Daniel, to me, if we look at the brain and we see the three levels of the brain and, and different things that are found at the brain and the interactions between lower and higher levels of the brain, we see clear evidence for evolution. The brain is the only organ of the body in which we can actually see the strata of evolution, not that the individual strata are exactly as they were at the, at the dawn of time when they evolved. But at the same time, I think the primary characteristic of the human brain is plasticity, in specifically with regard to the most well-developed ideas on the modules of, of the brain or hardwiring of the brain language. I find no evidence whatsoever to support the idea that language is an instinct or that it comes uh, in the genes or, in fact, the, the language instinct book, which has led to a lot of the development of, of work in evolutionary psychology, has an oxymoron as the title because something that has to be learned can't be an instinct. So my problems with the idea of hardwiring uh, have to do with the time depth that would be required for evolution.
the very idea of instincts and how difficult those are to specify. Like all of us, we can benefit by knowing more and more about more and more, uh, but I think there's been a deficit of work in cross-cultural psychology and cross-profoundly different societies. For example, Scandinavians versus British or Saudi Arabians or others. These are fairly similar cultures from the perspective of my work among hunter-gatherers. So we need to do work on more isolated societies that have had much less contact with the outside world to see how they think about some of these things. I find a lot of the talk of hardwiring of behavior analogous to the concept that digestion is hardwired into us. Um, it's certainly the case that our, our digestion re draws on several organs and works in a certain way, but for the evolutionary psychologist who would refer to these as modules, I don't find it useful to talk about digestion as a module of the body. Uh, it's a function of various organs. So by and large, I do believe that uh, humans evolved. I think natural selection is responsible for a lot of that. Other possibilities are responsible for other parts of it, perhaps. Uh, for example, the physics of cramming so many neurons into the uh, brain uh, could have led to some evolutionary changes. Uh, I don't think we know much about genes. No neuroscientist can even say with precision what it means for something to be local in the brain. So our ignorance far exceeds our knowledge as on most things, and uh, I don't think there is a clear answer one way or the other to these issues right now. Janet? I'm often puzzled by the way people from starting talking about evolution immediately move on to genes and presume very quickly that evolution has produced genes for this and that. One of the areas I've been most concerned with is the matter of sex differences. People just took it for granted for a long time that men and women were entirely different. Then, as scientific work began to develop, people pointed out that we hadn't got controlled experiments, that men and women had been systematically differently treated in cultures, and so we couldn't tell whether the, how deep the differences were between the sexes. Now, evolution gives you a completely different direction from which to start asking this question. You can say, look at the physical differences between men and women. Women produce the babies. Men merely get away with a small contribution. <laughs> <laughs> women have to go on feeding the babies. Now, if you're going to be involved in evolution and you need a strategy, a psychological strategy, to make you leave offspring, it immediately becomes clear that there should be, certainly in mammals, a rather different psychology in males and females. The females can only, in our species, produce at most one baby a year, reproducing flat out. A male, if he can get enough cooperative females, can produce any, and keep the other men off, can produce any number. Now, of course culture has changed all this. Of course all kinds of developments have happened. But it's still interesting that we are so radically different it physically that you would expect to have a different selection pressure on the sexes. And it would be rather surprising if there weren't some deep-rooted emotional differences in them. And when you find that a lot of the things that have been historically said about the sexes, going back to as long as we've had literature, 
you suddenly notice that an awful lot of them coincide with what evolution would have predicted. Now, this is only the beginning of the research. Of course, we've got cultural differences between Scandinavia and Saudi Arabia, but might there still be persistent differences in psychology in the Scandinavian male and female? I'm delighted that males are changing nappies and carrying babies around. I think this is a very good thing. I think it's culturally a better thing, but that's because I'm assessing it from a values point of view. I think it's better. But I still think there is a very interesting question, and you can start asking it only when you've got evolutionary theory in the background to direct the questions. So I see it as a new line of approach to empirical science. Well, one of the things that sort of come out in all those presentations, I think, is the sense that perhaps uh, the focus on genes, uh, there might be an overestimate, uh, uh, overemphasis on the genetic aspect, particularly of evolution. And one of the things that perhaps that relates to is this idea of hardwiring, which people often talk about hardwiring. Oliver was happy to talk about hardwiring, although he was saying, you know, we're hardwired to be flexible or, or a phrase a bit like that. Um, Daniel was more cautious about using the phrase at all. And certainly I think that one of the uh, attractions perhaps that of genes in the public imagination and maybe even the scientific imagination is that it seems seems to at least provide some sort of mechanism for hardwiring so if we take those issues to begin with Oliver I mean what, what do you think do you think we we make too much of the genes as hardwiring and setting things or actually or are we still not actually taking it ser seriously enough um, well I think it depends on w which aspect of behavior you're talking about. And I completely agree with Daniel that the biggest conclusion is that we don't know enough about how these things work. And it's an ongoing empirical question to identify which genes do what and what, if any, uh, hardwired mechanisms we have. But I think in some ways, the effect of genes is uh, underestimated. I think that most of the work in behavior genetics suggests that about half of the differences between the people in this room are due to differences in genes with the other half um, due to environmental factors and, and other random factors. I think that's not really very surprising. I think, gene, I think brains are a bit like our faces. Everyone's got the same bits, but they all look slightly different, and I think our brains are likely to be similar. So I don't think that's um, widely known or, or understood. In other ways, I think the effect of genes is, is wildly overestimated because people are responding to a sort of, uh, uh, not exactly a journalistic, but a sort of a folk notion of what genes do, that they are these sort of little magnetic particles that pull people in one direction or the other or pull their, their strings, and that's not what genes do at all. I, I will say that um, humans learn uh, as much with their bodies as they learn with their brains. So when we have ex olfactory uh, experiences, when we walk through the world, uh, when, when we uh, are hurt or, or too hot, we're learning things. These are stored in our memory. We learn, just as we talk with our hands and our bodies and not just our mouths, uh, we're an integrative system. And I don't think that this integration and how it, how it works together has been sufficiently studied cross-culturally. So what is culture? To me, culture is not just the knowledge that we have by living in a particular society, but it is the arrangement of knowledge and the ranking of values that we have. So, so we learn these things, they're caused by all sorts of things. But I remember the first time I was doing field research in the Amazon, I sat next to a fellow who had a cockroach crawling up his arm, and I said, what do you call that? And he picked it up and he said, oh, bite, and he ate it. And I wouldn't have eaten that cockroach. Um, 
And, and uh, as I did further work on the people, I realized that they don't have a concept of numbers. They don't have the, they don't have the number one. They don't have any numbers. They don't have words for color. They have uh, no stories. They're all atheists. They have no stories of God, that, that is. They have no stories of the ancient past. This is a society in which these views are enforced uh, culturally and for which genetic contributions seem to be minimal beyond the embodied cognition of the fact that we all share a common body and, and therefore learn things similarly. So, again, I see genes uh, playing a fairly small background role to to a lot of the things that are, to me, most interesting about humans. Um, Jenny, uh, your thoughts on this? I was just trying to think of an analogy because we have difficulties with the way the language works here. But we've all got a similar kind of body. That is, it can be damaged by similar kinds of things. Now, in different society, in different parts of the world, we're going to learn different kinds of caution because we have to be careful of different kinds of thing. But also in different societies, you will get imaginary dangers. I mean, what science would now say. You get cultural dangers. People are told that this is going to cause harm and such. Now, Darwin's point when he was talking about emotions was that they're up subject to the same evolutionary pressures as bodies. Obviously, if you have the same kind of human body, it will respond differently in different environments and it will respond in different cultures. But the same could be true of emotions. Things are quite different in Sweden from the way they are in Saudi Arabia or among your tribe, but there's still an interesting question of whether humans react emotionally to certain complex situations in particular ways, and to what extent that underlying basis of reaction, like the underlying basis of vulnerability to sharp knives, is the same throughout them. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Now, we have a second question. To what extent can a knowledge of biological evolution inform and enrich and help our studying of cultural differences? And perhaps because you've done most on cultural diversity, you might want to go first on this. I routinely get emails from scientists, and have you done genetic testing on these people? Are they really different? And... And besides the fact that I find that question relatively offensive, uh, I have seen people from these villages who were kidnapped as toddlers or babies raised outside in different societies who grow up with all of the normal range of abilities that Brazilians have of that economic class. So there, there is a good example of how the genes don't predetermine the, you know, for example, the inability to distinguish numbers or, or eating cockroaches. These are just things that, uh, that culture affects. But I don't think that uh, most people working in the field have a sufficient grasp of the nuances of culture and the power of culture and ranking values. I think we often think of culture as just 
some amorphous thing, as the philosopher John Searle has referred to, just the background, the, the knowledge that we all share by being members of a certain society. But it's a, lot, it's a lot more structured than that and a lot more powerful than that. And so, for example, among the Pitaha people that I work, there's no recognizable phenotype in terms of color, body shape, or, or hair, and yet everybody grows to the same height and more or less the same weight. And why is that? Well, I think it has to do with the cultural environment. Boaz talked about this years ago, studies of new immigrants to the United States and uh, then looking at their families after they had been in the U.S. and how the phenotype changed so dramatically. That we have genes is a truism. We all have two arms. We all have certain things we have to accomplish in life. But it's not clear to me what is the neurological basis, for example, of hardwiring, what is the uh, predictability of, of this, uh, but that genes could cause cultural differences, I find uh, no evidence for whatsoever. Johnny, early on in that intervention, you, you, you gestured some, I don't know, surprise, horror, shock. What was it that um, Daniel said that made you um, pricked up your ears? He said he found the question rather offensive. Now, it doesn't seem to me that a scientific question about whether there are genetic differences between people should be regarded as offensive. This is why so much is important in evolution, not in whether you're asking a particular scientific question, which may be perfectly reasonable, but what political and moral inferences you're making from this. And as a philosopher, I find that most of these arguments in evolution go badly wrong because people, whatever the evolutionists say, they will leap to some political conclusion about it. If men are evolved to take more sexual opportunities than women, if women are evolved to be extremely choosy about men, what follows? Does it follows, follow that we shouldn't have social punishments for rape? Certainly not. What did you find offensive then? Why did you find it offensive? Oh, because of the, not the idea that it's possible for there to be genetic differences between isolated populations. I don't find that offensive. I find offensive the idea that they came from people who predicted that all people should have this and therefore these people must somehow be inferior. Any, anybody in the audience on the paleo diet, whatever it's called? Anyone? Anyone there? <laughs> oh no, this is very not very trend setting here. Yeah, well, so, I can, I can put my hand up. You are. Yeah. You're on the paleo diet. So, so, so just for people who don't know, what is the paleo diet? Well, it's uh, a diet that argues that humans uh, humans are healthier if they eat the food that they were designed to eat for millions of years um, before agriculture and industry came along. So in practice, that means lots of what berries. It means very un meat, it, it means very meat. uncontroversial things like um, it means eating uh, unprocessed food at all possible, natural foods, whole foods. Okay, so that's a paleo diet. Now, that's sort of a purely physical thing here, but this idea that we have clues as to how we should be or how we are, stroke how we should be from looking back to our deep ancestral past is one that um, pops up psychologically as well. And so uh, I, I do wonder what each of us uh, makes of that idea. Um, should we understand ourselves in terms of our deep ancestral past? Is that a key to unlocking uh, secrets about how we tick and maybe telling us something about how we would thrive in, in the modern world? Well, I find the paleo diet as useful as the concept of paleo temperature, for example. I don't like to be exposed to very high temperatures or very low temperatures. I have a temperature range that I quite like. I don't need a 
to think that this particular diet that was eaten by my ancient ancestors is good because it was eaten by my ancient ancestors. It's simply that my body has certain properties that I share in common with most mammals. And for the same reason that I have limited toleration to temperature variation, the human body unclothed will die below 65 degrees, I, I don't, uh, I mean, that's just the, lim the physical limitations of my body. I don't, I agree that it's healthy to eat in a different way, but I, I think it has very little to do with evolved practices of the cultures of my ancestors. Yeah. Do you find this sort of harking back to our hunter-gatherer times helpful when thinking about how we are thinking today in this room? Not unless you put it in the context of a wider understanding of evolution, because you have to understand that all evolution does is look back and say, these were the characteristics that enabled this species, this group, to reproduce effectively in this environment. And that depends on what, who the competitors were and all the rest of it. Now, we do know that if you eat a paleo diet, you probably at that time were a more successful reproducer than somebody. I can't imagine what else they could have eaten. I mean, so, um, I, I don't know. But, um, but the point is, you have to remember that working with evolution isn't a matter of something which makes you as happy and healthy as possible, because evolution might not have hit on the best way to make people happy and healthy, and it might all have depended on who you were competing against, what the climate was like at the time. And the mere fact that evolution produced something doesn't mean we can't, with our enormous advance of science, find a way to do it better. But, I mean, it, it, but the general point is, um, the, the argument is not because people used to eat it, therefore we ought to eat it. It's not that. The mm. point is, considering those, uh, that environment, considering those selection pressures, can generate hypotheses about what kinds of biological mechanisms we have, which can be used to identify what might be uh, yes. good and bad foods and that so it's a source of hypotheses about how we work and what uh, nutrients we require but i want to make a more uh, a general point um and this goes back to you saying whether it's controversial it seems to me everyone's an evolutionary psychologist when it comes to um, every other species on the planet um, everyone's an, an evolutionary psychologist or an, uh, an adaptationist even um, when it comes to most of uh, most of our bodies certainly up to the chin um, <laughs> And most people, I suspect even on this panel, are evolutionary psychologists kind of up to a, maybe just a sort of behind the ears. Um, that there's, there's uh, the, our visual system, our motor control system, um, all this, this is completely uncontroversial and there's no other explanation for how this intricate machinery could have come about other than natural selection and the proof of the puddings in the eating, but thinking about how natural selection works can generate theories about what, what to look for, what to investigate, what to, ex what to expect. The only sort of controversy is this kind of bit at the, f at the front, um, which includes sort of human social behavior, which we're all passionately uh, feel very strongly about in different ways, and our ability to, as I said, in invent new ways of, of doing things. Let's just keep the controversy in proportion, but it seems to me entirely uncontroversial to, to look to see whether there is some um, uh, natural selection has, has uh, sculpted that bit um, in the way that we expect it to have sculpted the, the social psychologies of every other species, I think. Okay, so just finally then, uh, just give you just you know, 30 seconds or something just to sort of say what for you, just to s sum up or, or in any kind of way you'd like. All right, so, so the biggest lesson for me uh, here, there, there are two. First of all, 
we need to have a more nuanced concept, conception of culture and what it is. Uh, second, we don't know much about how the brain works and we don't know much about the roots of human behavior and we're struggling uh, with a great deal of effort to understand these better and some of us reach different points uh, along the continuum of possible perspectives, but as long as we're committed empirical scientists, we have a way of reaching consensus or saying, if you want to pay attention to that, that's fine, that's not important to me. And so you, you, you reach these kinds of conclusions. Janet? Right. Science is about discovering the way the world works in terms of causes and effects and so on. The way you start asking your questions will depend on the existing background theory you've got, which is different from values. Um, I mean, they both come in, but it will do that. And evolutionary theory gives us a tremendously powerful tool for asking questions about ourselves that we wouldn't otherwise have thought to ask. But the important thing is that these questions are purely scientific and causal, and one of the problems that we have in discussing evolution is that people still, and I think it's a cognitive mistake, a big cognitive mistake, people still will try to make inferences from the scientific claims about the way they are to claims about the way things ought to be, and they will get angry with the scientific claims because they think they are politically motivated. So the crucial thing is to recognize, I think, this is controversial, but I think since Darwin, we have absolutely got to make Hume's separation between facts and values. We pursue the question of fact absolutely impartially, and then we decide what to do with the values. Finally, Oliver? Um, well, I, th I think that the, the, the success of evolutionary psychology is an empirical question. It's going to depend on what the what the, what the data tell us. Um, I think it's a really good, interesting, promising idea, um, but there just aren't that many evolutionary... There's not much evolutionary psychology. There's not that many evolutionary psychologists working on it. There's probably uh, a couple of dozen uh, active, adaptation-minded psychologists pursuing uh, these, this research agenda. And if you think a couple of dozen compared to the number of economists or the number of political scientists, it's a very small number of people that have generated an idea that's obviously interesting to a lot of others. It often feels to me that there's more critics of evolution psychology than evolution <laughs> psychologists themselves. Um, so I just I hope that uh, through discussions like this, people can um, sort of put to one side the, the caricatures of both sides of, of the argument and contribute or uh, encourage more research, more data, and then we can continue to have more uh, productive discussions like, like this. I think the panel have, have, have walked the walk as well as talked the talk. They've been absolutely fantastic, clear, and join me in thanking them. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. So what do you think? Is evolutionary psychology a neglected discipline? Or are our cultural differences easily explained by culture? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag Philosophy for Our Times. <laughs>